Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Digital Switch in lockdown. <laughs> How are you, Sonia? I'm doing as good as I can be. How about you? <laughs> doing all right. So I believe this is month uh, 37 in uh, lockdown. Is that is that about right? <laughs> 37, 38, you know, (laughs) (laughs) so um, obviously we are recording this uh, on uh, uh, Google Meet actually. And so uh, I hope our listeners forgive the the less than optimal sound quality here, but uh, we figured uh, what, uh, what could we do to keep the show moving? And uh, this was really the only option, but having said all of that, Sonia, tell us uh, who we have today. So this week we have a repeat guest, um, Harpal Gill, who is Piernova's Director of Business Development in Europe. We are really excited to have him back. So welcome, Harpal. Uh, Hello, Sonia. Hello, Navid. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think in these strange times that we live in, I think... um, uh, there might be some relevance actually as a backdrop to the lockdown that we have, and it's a it's a relationship with the discussion on hand around regulation itself. Absolutely, and and the fact that you're a repeat listener tells me that uh, <laughs> somebody took us seriously to come back a second time. <laughs> it's <laughs> That's always, always a good thing. <laughs> and likewise, Harpal, thank you. Um, so today we want to talk about uh, regulation and banking. And given your background, Harpal, we thought this was a, a great opportunity to kind of pick your brain a little bit around, um, you know, just in general regulation. And then we're going to talk about one specific regulation known as BCDS 239. So let me just kind of set the stage. And I kind of want to get your opinion as to how we ended up where we are. So um, we know that the 2008 crash uh, or the 2008 recession, if you will, um, had a lot to do with lack of regulations, right? So um, that lack of regulation, and I hate to oversimplify it, but that lack of regulation allowed financial institutions particularly to take some, uh, we'll just say unnecessary uh, sort of risks. And of course, um, as our listeners know, uh this the fact that you know subprime mortgages were also a huge part of that we're not going to talk about that today i think that to some extent arguably would fall under the same uh sort of uh uh, reckless lending if you will or that sort of excessive risk taking um that uh maybe kind of fitting to this conversation as well but um What's really interesting is that because of the 2008 recession, which we'll talk about in just a sec, um, certain regulations came about, you know, the Dodd-Franks and so on and so forth. But I think it's kind of fitting to what we are seeing today as well, because I think a lot of people are worried about the economy falling apart, which, of course, to some extent it has. I think we've all heard the recent uh, unemployment numbers in the U.S. being at around roughly 30 million now. Um, But What's really important here, uh, and not to get sidetracked here, but what's important here is that because of these regulations, if the markets and if if the financial industry as a whole was to go through the same uh, sort of uh, the, the the downs that we saw in the last recession, it, it doesn't really have a lot to do with their risk taking anymore. We knew that before this coronavirus kind of changed the world. Um, the the principles of the economy were fairly sound. And so, you know, a a lot of these uh, unnecessary risks were addressed. And so what we want to talk about today 
is talk about just in terms of regulations, what happened, and then we're going to bring it back in in terms of how what we do um, allows financial institutions to do their jobs a little bit better. So let's go back to 2008 and the last recession. Harpal, in your opinion, what was missing in terms of regulations? Yeah, I think people refer to the 08 crash, but actually a lot of things were happening prior to that. So almost the you know, previous seven, eight years, a lot of things were happening, which individually probably didn't mean a lot, but it was actually creating an environment which led to the financial crisis. So there's lots of easing of regulation. Um, again, there was a lot of lobbyists out there that were looking for certain re repeating of certain acts, such as the Glass-Steagall Act. So the Glass-Steagall Act, if, if you're familiar, actually pre precluded banks and investment banks uh, uh, actually being um, uh, acting as one. So the Glass-Steagall Act really separated banks from investment banks. So the, the commercial banks were, pre were for the consumers and investment banks for the broker-dealer community. That repealing of that act really allowed the banks and the investment banks to merge and create a much larger institute, institution. So that you know, was one of the things that was happening. So you saw lots of merger activity. Um, also, you know, from around the 2000, uh, interest rates around 6%, they slowly were creeping down to about 2% at the low within about a three year period. Again, in and of itself, that's a good thing. People like lower rates, but is contributing to the overall uh, you know, the instability that was about to fall in the financial market. Um, again, securitized debt probably wasn't as popular at that point, but there, there's a new product that got developed again in that same sort of same time frame where that suddenly became very, very popular. And the demand for that actually exceeded the supply. So there's a push to create more and more debt, which then led to the sort of subprime loans that were being generated. So you could see lots of things were happening, feeding the system in its entirety. So that, when the, when the tide turned, and in fact the tide started to turn probably around 2003 and four, when some of the loans that were put out there, particularly subprime loans, actually got reset later after about a year or two, to, uh, a year or three years. So when those got reset, some of the subprime loans that were out there, people actually couldn't afford them. So the default rate started to increase probably around 2006, uh, pushing to, you know, a high in 2007 when technically the housing bubble burst. Uh, even at that point, I think the financial, the, the, the system was actually reasonably secure, but it took about another 12 months for the financial crisis to really hit when the level of loans that were out there and the default rate started to increase, as well as this securitized debt, which nobody really fully understood, suddenly started to kind of burst and people realized they didn't have really an effective mechanism of understanding what was in those securities and how do you price them. So a lot of things happened that created it, but the housing bubble was the kind of trigger. Uh, and then, of course, we had the financial crisis that followed very, very quickly. So when we focus on particularly the financial crisis, we also really want to focus on um, the regulation that came after it. So specifically today, we're talking about BCBS 239, which from my understanding, really focuses on risk assessment, governance, and reporting. But beyond that, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about what exactly it is? So BCBS 239 is really a framework um, that really took about two to three years to find, two to actually longer to formulate. Um, it's really guiding both the banks and the regulators. So 
whilst people see it immediately as a, as regulation that's directed at the institutions, it actually also guides the regulators to ensure that they are well equipped to manage uh, the banks that they oversee. So it's really guide, it's really principles more than anything else. Um, I think it's principles around ensuring that you have a demonstrable framework, right? that allows you to anticipate the risk, manage the risk, and report the risk in a timely manner. So the, there's 11 specific principles that banks have been um, asked to adopt. Um, and I think with some with relative success, um, some less so. I think it's because there are principles and it's not very um, prescriptive. It's hard to assess whether you've actually achieved full compliance or not because it's more guidance rather than uh, a prescriptive um, set of guidelines. So Harpal, it's, uh, you know, it sounds very much like it's uh, to some extent still left for to to the financial institutions to interpret what is required of them. Is that fair? Yeah, I think they, they left it to the banks to interpret because it's difficult to uh, specify with absolute um, direction because each bank uh, is set up slightly differently. So if you think about the, the, the main things that they look at is that the architecture or the systems that underpin most of the banks are different from firm to firm. So it's very difficult for them to say, you should do this or deploy this tool. So they've given what they want is the outcome. The outcome is being able to uh, anticipate risk. So how do you do that? That's left for the banks to figure out, but they need to be able to show that they, and demonstrate that they can anticipate risk, i.e. run some modeling, run scenario analysis, look at what would happen and what if scenarios, and then how do they manage that risk, right? So it's really about the ability to manage risk that they anticipate, can they do that effectively? Again, they have to demonstrate that. And of course, then to report it, to make sure that they can, if they can get reports out both internally and to externally within a reasonable time period. So I think the outcomes are fairly clear. How they do it, I think they're leaving it to the banks uh, themselves and their, and their management to figure out how to adopt that. Uh, and it has, as I said, it has been a challenge. So so let's talk about that for a second. Why is that a challenge for them? Is it because they don't know specifically? I mean, I think what, what, what I'm hearing from you is that the outcome is somewhat clear. The output is somewhat clear as to what they need to do. But it's not as simple to implement those things um, to actually achieve that outcome. Is that fair? Yeah, that, that's very fair. I think, again, because there are principles, um, the, you know, each bank or each uh, senior manager uh, who's been charged with that responsibility will have a different interpretation, right? So they're into each each bank CDO, if that's the person that's responsible, will interpret the guidelines in its in its own way relative to the bank and its objectives. Also, there's a, a really a lack of standard industry tools out there. Again, because each architecture is very very different, it's difficult to say this tool is going to work and you should deploy this because each bank's architecture is somewhat in a different state of, I would say, evolution. Um, some are more legacy than others. So it's hard to really kind of bring in any tool that could uniformly fit into every organization and give you the same outcome. Um, again, I referenced legacy systems. I think that's still quite prevalent uh, amongst a lot of the banks where a lot of the mergers and acquisitions that happen, a lot of the consolidation of systems probably didn't happen as quickly as they should have. So there's lots of um, you know legacy systems that are sitting in in banks that actually now preclude them to to some extent in deploying new technology. 
So Harpal, you wrote a really great blog post on how risk management or regulatory compliance essentially goes hand in hand with um, data governance. So data governance is having policies and rules in place to monitor and manage data throughout its entire life cycle. And we talk about that a lot because our product is an active data governance tool. When we talk about data quality, banks can now have confidence in what they're reporting to these regulators. And this is all part of having an effective data governance framework. So I'm wondering from your perspective, how does having a data governance product ensure enterprises can comply with BCBS 239? So I think uh, people, again, will have their own opinions on what is an effective data governance. Um, I guess simply put, it's one that works. Uh, but I think it goes beyond that. I think it's one that actually stays relevant through the course of time and through changing regulation and the environment. So, you know, if we look at data governance, um, I think we've talked about this previously, I think you have also, Sonia, is that there's two elements to it. There's data governance um, and there's a governance framework. So having just an effective data governance in, its, in and of itself actually isn't enough, right? And equally having a, a data management framework isn't enough. The two in, down, in, the two in tandem are actually necessary, but have, even having those will only give you a, a positive outcome at a point in time, because unless those two stay, in, stay relevant and can continue to change over time, they're gonna become outdated. So one of the key um, things that need to change is that the governance framework needs to be active rather than passive. So whilst your data framework could be sufficient, you need to have an active data governance model that allows you to adopt change as new regulation comes in, as new demands come in from both internal and external parties. So Harpal, um, in terms of our product, in terms of the Kimu Farm platform, uh, can you speak a little bit of, uh, on the topic of how our platform uh, essentially can help enterprises comply with BCB uh, S239. Of course, just going back to the last point, um, I think there's one point worth noting is that even the latest um, uh, report from the BIS that tried to assess banks' compliance with BCB, BCBS 239 showed that actually from a year-to-year -year basis or from the last report to the most recent report, some banks had actually regressed which really highlights the fact that most banks probably have a passive uh, governance framework that wasn't able to adjust to the new requirements or the new or, or the volume of data that's potentially coming through banks. So the need for a active data governance actually is highlighted by the report itself. The way I would look at Peernova Solution and the reason it's unique and relevant is that it looks at um, you know. If you, it looks at five different elements. If you look at all the principles that are out there, um, and I think uh, I'll, I'll talk you through a couple of these, is that one is, as I said, is the passive versus active data governance. I think that's actually a prime uh, component of our solution. And that really forms the basis and the foundation that allows it to kind of work in a, in a cohesive manner. But the BCBS 239 also talks about data aggregation. Again, because these were principles and guidelines, and in fact, some of these are now nearly 10 years old, that needs to change. Data aggregation in itself actually doesn't mean a whole lot. It seems like more of a summation. However, what you need is data lineage, right? I, can we actually connect the different attributes of data that are relevant for reporting and management in such a way that actually you can see the connection between certain data points and certain attributes 
you know, the summation is almost the easy bit. As I said, it's about just adding two, two elements together. But if you can see the lineage across the two attributes and, and then do the summation, it actually means a lot more. Um, also, data they talk about data availability. Data availability, again, is great, but actually is the data of the quality that's required. So the pen of a solution really focuses on the data quality aspect, not just the data availability. And previously, what's been happening is that people run their rules based on their own sets of data, depending on the requirements across the bank. Our objective is to ensure the quality of the data coming in, then run the entire rule set against that so that you can, you're not having this bifurcated approach or this siloed approach. You're getting, you're getting the data that's clean because our tool facilitates that. Then you have the rules that need to be run, right, against the entire set of data so that you get a you get a real time view of the risk relevant for that data set that you have the fundamental premise of our solution is to ensure data quality as a foundation the pain of a solution focuses on a end to end approach rather than a siloed approach so we know that banks have many different functions many different products and typically each division actually looks at how to manage their individual business we're saying actually that's that's okay for an internal perspective, but for a governance and for an external perspective, you need to see that on an end-to-end -end basis. So our tool, again, allows you to look at a record across the entire firm rather than just in a particular business line or a particular function. Again, we know that lots of banks still have uh, batch processes. I think, you know, given the evolution of technology, given the kind of nature of the markets that these, um, these banks work in, batch process really is is really holding back the ability to measure uh, risk on a timely basis. So the ability to look at real-time processing is actually a key differentiator. So if you think about all those uh, different elements, the Payanova solution actually is, I would say, the next generation of governance that's required to manage the BCBS 239. Um, and I think uh, it does that it, it does that successfully. Our Paul, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, uh, diving deep into this. Um, I just want to kind of summarize, and please correct me if I've misunderstood anything, but I think it's fair to say that regulation in general is a very output-focused type of an approach, right? So um, I think generally the intent is to obviously avoid something that has happened or to prevent something from happening. So to some extent, it's a little prophylactic, maybe it's a little preventative. But the truth is that the, the methodology is often left um, sort of, to, in this case, particularly left to the banks to sort of figure out how to do it. Um, you know, forgive my silly analogy, it's kind of like asking for a really delicious chicken soup, but not giving anyone an actual recipe to do it, right? So I think what's really important here is that the, the purpose and the focus of the BC uh, BS 239 here was to have you know, a very, very clear trust and transparency sort of woven into the fabric of this industry, right? And so, you know, if that is in terms of, uh, you know, mitigating risk or having better data quality or whatever, I think ultimately the goal here is to have more trust and transparency. Now, what our Kineoform platform essentially does is it's, it's very simply a tool, it's an active data governance tool that enables that end-to-end -end trust and transparency within both your data and also your business flows. Now, um, I think 
you know, I'm not going to go too deep into discussions of, uh, you know, our platform as a whole. And I hope we can have you back on the show to discuss even more details. But in essence, what we are offering here is this perpetually uh, sort of run data quality and timeliness rules on all of the data, uh, being able to sort of unlock the knowledge that's siloed within the enterprise and being able to sort of track and actually measure the um, specific uh, sort of, uh, you know, metadata rules or rule execution, all of those things so that you can actually have a good uh, sort of transparent way of looking at your operations or your business or business flows or your data as a whole. Now, there are some additional benefits with our platform, which we won't go into, but um, I think it is very important to highlight that, again, uh, these regulations are often uh, written with great intent, but without a whole lot of specifics so that the interpretation and the methodology as to how one would go to achieve them is often left um, sort of unspecified to some extent. And therefore, it is important for organizations, for enterprises in this case, to pick the right solutions to really achieve that end result that's expected. Um, with that said, again, Harpal, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I know you're connecting with us out of the UK, and uh, I know that uh, you guys are still in lockdown, so I appreciate you taking the time to uh, have a good conversation with us in this case. No, thank you very much, very much, Pete. It's been a pleasure to be on here. And that's a wrap. So thank you for listening to Digital Switch. You can find us on your favorite podcast streaming service or on digitalswitch.show. Stay up to date on podcast episodes, blog posts, and all things Pure Nova at purenova.com and at Pure Nova Inc. on Twitter. Have a great week.